I'm Kim Raycon, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academics podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. academic calling Alice Boleyn. In her debut, Dead Girls, Essays on Surviving an American Obsession, Alice Boleyn turns a critical eye to literature and pop culture, examining the ways in which media consumption reflects America's obsession with women. Incisive in its examination, Dead Girls constructs a sharp, perceptive, and relevatory dialogue on the portrayal of women in media and their roles in our culture. Alice's nonfiction has appeared in Elle, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and Salon, among other places, and she is currently an assistant professor of creative nonfiction at the University of Memphis. Dead Girls is on sale June 26th in paperback original format from our imprint William Morrow. So joining us today is Alice Boleyn, author of the forthcoming essay collection Dead Girls, Essays on Surviving an American Obsession. Alice, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting. So in the introduction to Dead Girls, you make two things clear. First, that your book is a book about books, but it's also about other pop cultural things, and that your overall goal is to make something about women from stories that were always and only about men. Why do you think we have this cultural obsession with Dead Girls, and why, why are we so drawn to listen and read and watch stories about them? answers to this. I think it's a complicated thing. I mean, I feel like there's always been some sort of archetypal interest in the sort of the perfect victim, you know, the, the, the virgin martyr, you know, the sacrificial lamb, whatever. I'm going way, way back. But I think that there's a way in which, especially since, you know, the Victorian era, we've sort of started to kind of structure all of our narratives as mysteries, and often they're murder mysteries. And it's a very satisfying way of thinking about uh, narrative, you know, about uncovering some secret or, you know, solving a problem. In the end, you're done, you know, it's over. And I think that with the dead girl, I mean, that's what Grail Marcus says, with the dead girl, her story's over before it began. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a way in which that is kind of comforting. It's like, okay, she's, she's dead. Uh, her story's over. I don't have to worry about her. All I have to worry about is sort of putting everything else back together, you know, putting everything else back in place. Um, there's something that's a little bit neat and tidy about the dead girl story, even if it seems to be, you know, this very abject thing, which is something I feel like I'm trying to interrogate uh, in the collection. Why we have, why we feel so comfortable with something that's so, uh, you know, disturbing. Do you think that there's one sort of form of popular culture that interrogates these kinds of stories more than others, or do you think it's about equal? I mean, I feel like TV is, I mean, it's one of, it's kind of how I started, mm-hmm. um, you know, thinking about this, you know, with Twin Peaks especially, but the way that you can have a season-long arc where everything is kind of tied up in the end, but it, you, you do have the possibility for all of these twists and turns and complications, you know, and hours and hours of uh, stuff. That, I think, is 
part of why this dead girl kind of obsession has proliferated, you know, towards the end of the 20th century Mm -hmm. um, with this sort of rise in interest in maybe a more complex, you know, TV art form. It, It gives the chance for, you know, all these reversals and reveals um, and cliffhangers and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I I admit that I'm a I'm a big fan of police procedurals and murder stories, and I I, I don't I don't really know why because most of the time, um, maybe it's just out of in some ways kind of pure enjoyment, not so much for the for the violence part of it, um, or or how much or how little of a dead body I I see or don't see it's more sort of the puzzle aspect because I either I'm pretty stupid or I'm just (laughs) or I'm just very good at playing the sort of narrative believing game that you have to play if you want to sort of be surprised like if you if you're not sort of always putting yourself in the role of the detective or whoever is is figuring it out but it's something that I really really enjoy and that's one of the reasons why your book was really interesting to me and one of the things that I think is interesting that you point out and that is true of of the genre of dead girl stories is that sort of the person that we the dead girl that we get right is she is a she is not so much a character uh, but the memory of her is is the character why do you think that distinction matters that it, that it's more that other people get to tell us things about her as opposed to her, the dead girl getting her own voice in any way it was something i was talking about with my friend um recently about whether or not about who we identify with i guess in mystery stories and if we kind of freely identify with multiple figures within the story and to me the thing that i i feel deep inside is that we do not identify with the dead girl. Mm-hmm. I think that if we saw ourselves in her, the stories would be too painful to hear. Often, you know, even when, you know, in a TV show or, um, you know, a book that has flashbacks, when we see the dead girl, she's idealized in some way or a little bit, you know, ghostly or, uh, you know, two-dimensional. Um to where I don't feel like any of us sit there and be like, that could have been me. I feel like who we identify with is the detective. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we all identify with that idea of searching or even with being the person who's left behind to pick up the pieces. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part of why the stories are palatable in any case is because we, we don't identify with the dead girl. She's gone. She's done. If we had, you know, a couple... I feel like that's part of... When I think about maybe In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, yeah. I think the thing that makes it very chilling is that he makes them... He talks about the Clutter family's everyday life in the first uh, few chapters, and you see them really very fully rendered as, as they lived their very normal lives, and then when they're horrifically murdered, it's very jarring. In general, in the dead girl story, you're not going to see, you know, a couple episodes of the girl just, you know, going to school or, you know, talking on the phone or whatever. You're going to just find her body immediately. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think it is to sort of detach immediately from the victim. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting because one of the things that you talk a bit about in, in an essay in Dead Girls is the first series of the podcast, Serial. 
which is something that I was totally addicted to, like many, like many other people. <laughs> and I remember li- when I was listening to it for the first time, one of the things that I remember being struck by is like, you know, you have, you know, you have Hayes murder, right? But you don't really, she, she drops out after like episode two, any sort of consideration of, of her um, as, as a, person i guess is is totally negated by the fact of that's not really where our interest lies in telling the story right it is something that disturbs me about serial i have other problems with it but i think that the fact i don't really i think it's a little bit unforgivable in some ways yeah um, that we do hear so little about her and she has such so little part in what is ostensibly her own story and i mean it's true that her family didn't want to be involved and things like that Um, which does sort of close off that part of the story, but Mm -hmm. it does feel like the people who were were the investigators were not overly interested in her um, or in, you know, thinking about her uh, pain or this, you know, the worst thing that a person could go through. So um, that is, I think that it's something that was talked about remarkably little when people talk about serial, even people who had problems with it. Yeah. Sort of the treatment of the victim. Yeah, and it's and it's something that, you know, will be interesting to see kind of what happens going forward because it's something that's back in the news now. Right. There, yeah, there are lots of things to do with that case that are interesting about, you know, race and the justice system and Baltimore and stuff like that, but I do feel like we have to think about you know, Hay herself and also her family. Mm-hmm. In the book, you also write that um, about the role of sort of, of white women, because most of the time in most of the stories of dead girls that we see or listen to or read, by and large, the ones that get the most attention or the ones that we pay the most attention to, however you want to, however you want to parse that, the dead girl in question is, is almost automatically a young white woman. Right. And you say it is difficult for white women to take up responsibility for our faces, looming large from looming from magazines, televisions, posters, blown up absurdly on buses and billboards, and it's and the aims we've allowed them to be deployed for. Or what do you think the cause for that difficulty is? Is it is it a kind of is it a kind of narcissism or is it a, is it a kind of particular bias from someone else that these are the stories that we most want to hear, see, and read about? I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's something that I was, one of my sort of overarching aims in the book is to think not only about the ways that kind of women are, um, women are targeted within, uh, you know, American culture and, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and our subjective violence, but also the ways that white women are complicit essentially in, um, in continuing that cycle of violence and also in, you know, other kinds of, uh, abuses. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it does have to do with vanity or, and I think if we can put it another way that, you know, women are often taught that their faces and their beauty and how they look is all they've, all they've got, you know, all they've got going for them, all that they can really, um, leverage. Uh, and so often someone playing on our vanity is, you know, a huge point of weakness, uh, where, you know, if someone tells you that you're beautiful or that they want you to be the face of whatever, um, it's hard to say no. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I think we see that over and over again. And I think you see it in, in obvious ways and in more subtle ways. But I think that, um, 
I think it's something that I, I guess I would like to see that there, well, well, I talk about the, the Central Park jogger case in the book and the ways that this victim was really roped into being sort of the face of, you know, good New York, of mm-hmm. white New York, of sort of, you know, the young, you know, professional class. And that was not her choice. She had nothing to do with it. Um, and it was absolutely out of her control. Mm-hmm. And so I don't feel that she is complicit in that narrative. Um, and I think often those things are out of our control. But I think as white women, we do need to take some more responsibility about the ways our images are used or the ways our stories are kind of perpetuated as being, you know, the most important or, or are centered. Um, and I think that thinking about the dead girl story is a way to sort of interrogate that centering of white women's existence. Yeah, and, and another way that you take a look at the dead girl story is through landscape. Talk about the Northwest, the American Northwest, Um, and you also talk about Los Angeles a lot. So why are those two geographical areas so interesting for these types of stories? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I spent most of my life in the American Northwest, probably, and I grew up in Idaho, and I lived in Montana for a long time, and... um, then I moved to Los Angeles, and I didn't, I knew kind of always, and I and I noted especially more recently, the ways that um, those two regions, specifically Southern California and the Northwest, really play into these noir traditions, mm-hmm. even like, um, you know, Dashiell Hammett has like his Montana novel, so it's like, uh, it, and it was something that was a bit mysterious to me, you know, why... <laughs> Why are in Twin Peaks, you know, it's in Washington, um, and there are all these serial killer stories, Ted Bundy, you know, the Green River Killer, that are in Washington State as well. Why these stories loom, why these places loom so large in the history of sort of American crime fiction and crime in general? And I feel like there are reasons that I've come to see. I mean, I feel like the L.A. noir is its own tradition, that a lot of it has to do with it just being a giant city. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there is something interesting in the ways that Los Angeles, um, the way it really boomed, you know, it, it really only became a city around, you know, the turn of the 20th century. And so um, it boomed really quickly, and the development of the motion picture industry happened extremely quickly as well. And I think that that is one place where you could locate kind of like... Um, a kind of disturbance that would create a bunch of crime stories because there are a lot of people moving there. There are a lot of people who are transient, who are coming in and out, um, and it's sort of this boom and bust prospector mentality, which I think is really rife for the noir. And in the Northwest, um, I think there part of what has it has to do with is the fact that there are lots more men than women in northwestern states. Um, that's been a cliche, but I think it's still true. Um, and uh, that has to do with the kind of industries that are there, like logging and branching and things like that. So that kind of creates this, I don't know, um, this very masculine culture. Um, and then also the fact that there, most of the communities in the Pacific Northwest even now are very isolated mm-hmm. um, by physical you know, things, you know, by mountains, by rivers, whatever. Um, and so even big cities often are, are pretty isolated, have, you know, wilderness nearby that would be uh, 
that would be very isolated. And so I think that that is also kind of a constant in crime stories, the ways that, you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, the way that somebody could do something in secret or could live a double life, I think has a lot to do with maybe an isolated landscape. I mean, it, it was interesting to, for me because, I, I, like I said, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about either the American West or Los Angeles, but it was interesting how both of those, in your writings and your chapters about them, it seemed really interesting to me how both of those places have very particular kind of de- decentering, destabilizing aspects to them, whether it is sort of physical remoteness or in the case of Los Angeles, the idea of such a such a sprawling city right. th- that has sort of its natural kind of urban hang-ups of, of traffic, <laughs> right? It's something that as it evolves and, and as it grows, Los Angeles makes its own or participates in its own isolation because it's so, just because it's so difficult and challenging and takes so long to get around. It's hard to get from one place to another. Yeah, I mean, people in Southern California, they make jokes about the towns that, you know, that are nearby that they never go to. It's like, oh, Arcadia, I've never been there, you know, Downeyville, or I mean, not Downeyville, uh, Downey, I guess is a place in Southern California. Downeyville is in Northern California. But, um, you know, you, you make jokes about places that, you know, even though you've heard of them for years, you've never, ever been. Um, because that's not the way the freeways are set up. They're not going to take you there, you know, or or you're, if it's not on your commute or it's not where you know anyone who lives there, you know, then things are totally segmented and isolated. And it does create, I feel like, this interesting, even, even in Raymond Chandler, he plays with um, the sort of vast differences between different neighborhoods, um, in Los Angeles, he has like little seaside towns, and then he goes to Beverly Hills and talks about, you know, the cultural differences and also the ways that people could potentially reinvent themselves, you know, or maybe be living a double life purely within, you know, the confines of the Los Angeles city limits. Yeah. So I still, I still haven't worked out a good segue to talk about Britney Spears. So there's always time to talk about it. There's always time to talk about Britney Spears. <laughs> we are both fans of the Mystery Show podcast episode called Britney. I love it. Yes. I, I do too. <laughs> what what do you love about it? Because I totally love it too. I listened to it again this morning on my on my way in. Uh, I should have listened to it. Maybe I'll listen to it today. Well, I think I told you earlier that I have recounted like the story of the episode essentially to people later because it just well, I guess I'll, I'll give a very quick recap. So in this episode, um, Starlight Kind has a friend who's a writer who, you know, maybe her second book, and it was had come out, and it wasn't a big success. Nobody really read it. And then she saw a paparazzi photo of Britney Spears holding the book, and she was like, what on earth? How did Britney Spears get my book? Like, did she like it? It's just this true mystery. And eventually, Starlight Kind goes through all of these, you know, attempts to get at Britney Spears, eventually she buys, like, VIP tickets to her Vegas show and asks Britney what, how she got the book, and Britney says, my assistant gave it to me, and then she says, did you like it, and she says, yes, I loved it, and that's kind of the end of the episode, Mm -hmm. if I'm really recapping it really quickly, Um, and I think that there's something, it's really simple, of course, but I think there's something to it that, um, that 
Well, maybe there's more than more to Britney than meets the eye. Even in the book, they talk about how she reads a lot and mm-hmm. she's very shy. Mm-hmm. Um, that her personality is not exactly what we have all grown up to see as this kind of exhibitionist or somebody who's really like bubbly, America's you know sweetheart. That she's actually this person who's maybe a little bit more introverted, maybe just likes to like sit around and read, you know, like all of us do. So it is like a stars, stars they're just like us thing. Yeah. Um. And all, yeah, just the thought that Brittany would be a person who could just, you know, read a random book that someone gives her. I don't know. It totally does reshape your your idea of who she is. Well, and it, yeah, and, it, and, and to me, I also recount the episode to people quite a bit. Um, I did it for two of my colleagues recently. Um, one <laughs> of, Have you seen it? And I'm so excited when they say no, because I'm like, okay, let me explain. And they're like, I could have listened to it. Exactly, exactly. But there's no you have to exp- you have to give a recap and then you go off and you listen to it because one right. of one of my colleagues actually went to see Cher for her Vegas show and was able to meet Cher and she was wow. just absolutely amazed that people paid to have this VIP experience. And so I was just like, "Oh my god, like you need to listen to this episode. Right, right. <laughs> um this is a thing. This is a thing that people do." The way that you talk about her in part in your essay Lonely Heart is really interesting because you you talk about her her song Baby One More Time. How your recognition of of the loneliness that she talks about kind of caught you off guard. Right. Yeah, I mean that is, I think, in the episode of Mystery Show, you do get a sense of this sort of the insane celebrity that she, you know, experiences and how incredibly weird that would be. Yeah. Um, and you get a sense of it from these rules or these, you know, these like the ways she's just totally set apart. And I think that. Yeah, in in Baby One More Time, I mean, it's a famous lyric. She says, my loneliness is killing me. Mm-hmm. And it was something I had never thought about. I'd never heard until someone pointed it out to me. And I do, I did start to notice loneliness as a theme in, in Britney Spears' music and also in kind of um, the ways that we have, I don't know, the way we view her as, mm-hmm. a, as a public figure. Um, that, I mean, being so set apart, being, you know, where no one can talk to you, no one can uh, touch you, whatever, I mean, that is a lonely way to, way to live. And I feel like loneliness is really compelling to me as an emotion. <laughs> um, it's something that, I don't know, I feel like everyone experiences, but everyone experiences it alone. So once I saw that this person who is so public, so everywhere, actually had these weird layers to her, um, it, was, it was so compelling to me. Early in, in Dead Girls, you talk about um, Maggie Nelson talking about um, her experience of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo in her college film class, right. uh, or class on existentialism, not film. But, but Nelson says that she asked her professor whether women were somehow always already dead or conversely had somehow not yet begun to exist. And it was that last part about somehow not yet begin to exist that made me kind of wonder well is that is that kind of what Brit- what happens to Britney or what is happening to Britney yeah well I mean I think there's definitely a reason that even when I was very first starting to think about this collection I always knew that the Britney Spears essay would be in there even though obviously she's 
alive. And yeah. I think that I, I and a lot of other people think of her as kind of a survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That's also a theme in her music, too. Yeah. But I think that, but I think that one way that I think about the dead girl is about the ways that women's lives are constrained, the ways that their behavior is, you know, um, dictated by the values of a patriarchal society, you know, what, what people eat, what, you know, what women, the ways women can move in public, um, the places that women can go. It is a kind of death in some ways, um, because oftentimes women are not fully free, and especially very public women like Britney Spears, who've gone through um, all of these very public struggles. Uh, there is a kind of flattening that happens, or, you know, it's not a true, it's something, I think, in a lot of ways, she's been dehumanized quite often mm-hmm. um, by her treatment in the press. Um, and so I did want to think about kind of that sort of, I mean, I think a lot about mental illness in the book, about mm-hmm. eating disorders, about ways that women's experience has been, have been kind of constrained. So I do want to think about death, you know, in a metaphorical way as well, um, kind of a death of death of the heart. So we just have one more question for you, and it's a question that we ask all of the guests on our podcast series. Okay, great. So since this primarily is a conversation for teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I had a lot of favorite teachers growing up. So many. I loved a lot of my teachers. I feel like the one who comes to my mind immediately, who I'm just going to go with, is my history teacher from uh, when I was a junior in high school. And actually, it's the same exact same time that I write about in The Lonely Heart, in the Britney Spears essay, when I, I went to this Catholic, really crappy Catholic high school in Nebraska for a semester. Mm-hmm. But my history teacher was um, named Mr. Faricki, and he was just so... He was just so snarky and mean to us always, and he would call us, we were third period, and he would call us third period, <laughs> because he hated us, And um, but I don't know why, there was just something about him that I just found, because I was having such a terrible time at that school, and he also appeared to be having a horrible time there as well, and he had been teaching there for so long, for like 30 years, and even people were like, Mr. Fricky, why don't your kids go? to this school, and he was just like, I'm not sending them here. <laughs> so it was really, I honestly, even though I could give a more heartwarming example of teachers who really changed my life, I just always look back on him with so much, like, so much gratitude, because he kind of validated my experience at that place. And Britney Spears unites us all. Exactly. And Britney was right there with me, by my side, like an angel. Well, Alice, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. This was really fun.